Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Faith here with your welcome toast. Herbs and wine have a limited lifespan, so it's best not to keep them until they die, or you do. I got that sunshine in my pocket. Got that good soul in my feet. I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. I've been waiting for this show. One of the great wine experts, Michael Kane, is our guest, which means fantastic wine coming up, and it is fantastic. Plus, the book you have to read, Why You Eat What You Eat, by a neuroscientist who says, for instance, that bringing our own shopping bags to the grocery store makes us buy more treats. We have a really good kitchen tip. Plus, Alex tells us how to make smashed cheeseburgers. I just like saying those words. My beloved food buddies are here. The great chef and home cook, Chris Prosperi, senior producer, Robin Doyen Aiken, joining us from our sister station in Phoenix, Arizona, KJZZ, Alex Province, and our studio guest, the wine expert I mentioned, the man who teaches me so much, Michael Kane of Rosenthal Wine Merchants. Hey, everybody. Hey. hey okay, we're in our studios at the Big G, Gateway Community College in downtown New Haven, where we have a good time in the college's five professional teaching kitchens. Alex, I want to start with you because who can resist smashed cheeseburgers? It is fun to say, isn't it? Yeah. How do you make them? <laughs> They're fun to eat. So take your paella pan that you have sitting around. You bought your paella pan. There are <laughs> fancy ones in gourmet stores. Sure. And they cost a fair amount of money. Lodge that makes cast iron skillets mm -hmm. and casserole yeah, pots. Camp, camping pots, Camping too. pots. <laughs> they make now a paella pan. And I think that's I what you it. used, Alex. In designing our kitchen out here, we went with that Southwest theme. And Lodge just makes this beautiful heavy-duty paella pan. It's already pre-seasoned. It fits perfectly on the grill. So you could probably use it on a gas grill. We're using um, briquettes and mesquite wood. So here's what we did. We took full fat beef, right, Chris? Yeah. So this is like the 75, 25 or 70, 30, you know, and I'm always embarrassed ordering it. I'm jumping in to say that if you have health issues and you can't have that, you're not excluded from this recipe because you do the low fat hamburger meat. You just put a teaspoonful of olive oil just before serving on your patty or one paper-thin pat of butter, I mean an eighth of an inch, and just let it melt on the top. It will flavor the meat so you think you're having much, much more. People have health issues and can't have all this fat. I just want you to be included in this. Okay, go, Alex. All right, so you're going to hate me now, Faith. We take our beef, and you're really just going to make little spheres the size of a ping-pong ball, so maybe a quarter of a pound. Meanwhile, the paella pan's on the grill getting smoking hot, and you're going to bring your uh, spheres 
right before you drop them onto the pie pan, you're going to add a pat of butter. So each little sphere gets its own little pat of butter. You drop it down, and then you place the sphere right on top of the melting pat of butter. But it's good. It's delicious. <laughs> so now you're going to take a spatula, smash these spheres down into paper-thin little burgers, little patties. The butter's browning, and you're developing this beautiful crust on one side. Crispy. And after crispy, brown, delicious, and then you're going to flip it over and right in, into the same little area, and you're going to brown the other side. And here's the thing. We love cheddar cheese. Faith, you love that like extra thick slice of sharp cheddar cheese like I do, right? Yes, yes. So you take that, but I also like sliced American cheese, like mm -hmm. Velveeta. <laughs> so you all those add kinds that. Of like, okay. So I do a slice of Velveeta or American cheese and really thick sliced heavy cheddar cheese, you know, right before they're done cooking. And then I layer my buns on top. So I do the bottom and then the, the top. And you have this little stack and you put the lid back on. And meanwhile, all the cheese is coming out the side and crisping on the pan. Mm. The, the bread's no. getting all soft and squishy. Mm -hmm. If you don't have one of those large paella pans to do this in, can we just do this in a cast iron skillet? Absolutely. The benefit of this paella pan is it's 15 inches wide. So you can fit four or six of these burgers in really yeah, easily. I can see and that. have enough room to get your spatula around. But yeah, yeah you could use... Any sauté pan that can withstand oven temperatures yeah. is going to work out there, right, Chris? Yeah, yeah. And you want – I like the idea of that one because if you had a 15-inch cast iron pan, it'd probably weigh 20 pounds, right? <laughs> so the paella pans is still heavy duty, but it's a, probably a little thinner than their cast iron. Oh. And the best part is now paella pans love to be seasoned. So this is like really good for the paella pan. You're getting all that fat at mm, high temperatures. So next so... time you're going to make paella, I you're going to have a really – yeah, I just don't. Pan. I don't want anybody to be excluded if they don't have a paella pan. For instance, I gave mine away, so I do have That's what you're getting several cast <laughs> iron skillets. Um, quickly, I want Alex to comment on a place in downtown Hartford. It's pretty remarkable because a few years ago, this building was in very sad shape, and a local couple bought this place. And brought it back in its full glory, as Alex says. Uh -huh. It's historically accurate, this Hartford green paint color. And on one side, there is a coffee shop. And on the other side, there is the Capital Ice Cream Shop. So there's Story and Soil Coffee in Hartford. And what's the street, Alex? It's right on Capitol Avenue. So. Yeah. And yeah, just across the street. From happy to say that these shops are doing a great business, and we are thrilled for downtown Hartford doing that. And especially to this couple, we thank them for renovating this yeah. building, doing it yeah. so well, and that there's a gathering place. There's nothing like shops like this in a neighborhood that pull that us to back. come together. Oh my gosh! Yeah. yeah. So, Faith, so didn't thanks you walk for that, by that building growing up? I did. Sorry. I did. I, for a time, I lived on Buckingham Street in Hartford, wow. and the Capitol, the State Capitol, was yeah. my playground. <laughs> Uh -huh. um, there was an apartment oh, building big with lawn. big lions in front of it. That's where I lived. I was very entranced by the lions. And I would walk by this building so often. So 
That was a great memory, Alex, and that's why one of the reasons I'm indebted to this couple for doing that. All right, next we're going to switch to this book. Now, six simple words on the cover of this book. Those six words say it all and made us pick up this book immediately, Why You Eat What You Eat, written by Brown University neuroscientist Rachel Herz, and it reveals the fascinating and surprising facts that influence our food consumption. Did you know that bringing reusable bags to the grocery store, as many of us now do, encourages us to buy more treats. Why is that? And how what we see and hear changes how food tastes. But here's why you're going to want to keep listening. Our guest says aromas can help curve cravings. Wait a minute. If I smell bacon frying, seriously? Okay, maybe not bacon. So, uh, Author Rachel Hers is a neuroscientist specializing in perception and emotion. She's also a professional consultant. I can see why after reading this. She also teaches at Boston College. Welcome to the Food Schmooze Party, Rachel. Thank you, Faith. It's great to be here. And, you know, I listen to your show, and I can oh. see that there's a lot of fabulous consumption. Oh. <laughs> I wish I were there <laughs> I like that. Fabulous so consumption. Funny. <laughs> fabulous consumption. Uh, that, should be our, that should be our billboard. Yeah. <laughs> fabulous, fabulous consumption. consumption. <laughs> um, okay, here we go. We're going to start with taste buds. Are there taste buds not just on the tongue, but in the back of the throat? Yes, there are a couple of taste buds in the back of the throat. There are a couple uh, inside our cheeks and also the roof of our mouth. And those taste buds are actually also hooked up to the taste cortex in the brain where we can still perceive them. There happen to be taste buds, though, elsewhere in our body, including our lungs, our pancreas, in our gut, our intestines, and so even in our nose. And we actually can't taste. So you can't taste bacon with your nose, or you can smell bacon with your nose, but you can't taste the saltiness with your nose or your lungs. What did you say in your book about male testicles, that there was something going on there? Yes, there happen to be also what are called chemical receptors that are equivalent to basically the taste buds. And so the reason why we so we have these receptors elsewhere in our body that are just like taste buds, and we also have uh, receptors in our body that are just like smell receptors. And unless they're directly in the nose or directly in the mouth, we can't either taste with them or the oral cavity, I should say, with respect to taste, or smell with them. But they're still doing a similar kind of function. So what's really interesting with respect to the taste receptors that are in our intestines, for example, is that they're responding to the food that we eat as well. They're not telling us that was sweet or delicious, but they are telling us something about the nutrient quality and reinforcing our likelihood of consuming that again or not, and also the pleasure that you may feel physiologically from having consumed it, like a good, healthy protein meal, for instance. What would you say is the greatest source of pleasure in our food? Which of these systems delivers that sense most acutely? Well, because this is my personal favorite sense in general, and it is the one that is directly linked to the emotion and motivation centers of the brain, I will say our sense of smell. Because when it comes to food, taste is really extremely simple. It is salt, sour, sweet, and bitter. And some people include umami. I personally don't 
bring it into the canon for various reasons. Mm -hmm. But in any event, it's a very simple system. We also use our eyes. We use our ears. These are all mediators of our experience of food. But aroma, our sense of smell, is where we get everything. So bacon is the taste of salt and then all the fantastic aromatics that are in that strip of pork food cooking on the stovetop. So it is our nose that really gives us that sensation. And because it's hooked up to the emotion centers of the brain, this is where the pleasure comes from. And this is where the motivation to dive in comes from. When I was in culinary school, we did this test where we ate bacon and we tasted it. And we're like, wow, okay, we got all that. And then they made us taste it again with our noses pinched. And we didn't get anything. It wasn't even bacon anymore to us, mm -hmm. which was exactly. amazing. I, I love yeah. to do this not with bacon but with yeah. jelly beans where you say you take a color, a couple of jelly beans, you see the colors, you might have expectations about what it's supposedly going to quote-unquote taste like. Now put it in your mouth and pinch your nostrils shut and bite down and people taste mm. sweet. And then I say, okay, let your nostrils go and they're flabbergasted. It's licorice, it's lime, it's cherry, whatever the case might be. And then like, this huge light bulb goes off like, ah, now I know. And this is why when we have a cold, for example, and our nose is blocked, food doesn't taste right. That's because the aromatics that are in our mouth that are released from chewing, they get into our nose through the back of the mouth and they're blocked when there's mucus there and therefore food doesn't taste right. Mm. So I want to bring Michael Kane of Rosenthal Wines into the conversation for a second because in talking about this book, Why You Eat What You Eat, Rachel Hers, the neuroscientist, is, is with us. We start to get into wine. What comes into play when you're tasting a liquid? You know, we were going to be tasting some wine shortly. Michael, if I'm blindfolded, can I determine the difference between a white and a red? The short answer is oftentimes no. There are a lot of white wines that if you had them truly blind – you would pull it on your palate, and when you suck in a little bit of air over it, I was delighted to hear Rachel saying a great deal of what we're smelling is actually rising up into the back sinuses through your throat, and um, and that's how you're encountering a great deal of the wine. Mm. You're really smelling most of it. Mm. A lot of the flavors that they taste, even in white wines, people would misconstrue as being a red wine. In your book, Rachel, you talk about that uh, sense of how taste happens and this thing of going through the throat and then air comes in and then it kind of circles back out again. What would that mean in your world, Michael, about how to taste a wine? How you get the most of it, I, it makes me chuckle because my wife is constantly telling me, don't do that at the dinner table with us <laughs> or wife and children, but really is to hold the wine in your mouth for a little bit and pull in some air over it. And if you do this rather coarsely or just for expedience yeah. sake, you can some. make it sound yeah. like you're gargling I know. the wine, <laughs> so let me, but, let but you can do it discreetly. Here's, here's something. So on the air, nobody, uh, you hear me pulling a cork out of this. We're going to get to this wine later, but let me, let me do something. What Michael is talking about, and Rachel, please comment on this, and Alex, you too. So can I just say, just as a just an aside, yep. so what Michael's doing, this is exactly the first step you want to do, but it's actually the exhalation that enables the aroma to reach the receptors in the nose that produces that sensation. So bringing the air in, you're not going to actually perceive the aroma of the wine until you exhale. Until so you, you need exhale. that and, air. And, and so you can't, with a, with a liquid in your mouth, Rachel, you can't 
uh, exhale over it. So you're saying through your nose you exhale the air? Well, so when you're swallowing, you're simultaneously exhaling, but you've brought in the air that will help, that the aroma is already mixing yeah. in your mouth. But it's at the moment of exhalation, like if you're just holding the air in your mouth with your, you know, you're not breathing, you have to exhale in order to get that flavor sensation. Okay, so yeah. you all hear wine people, including me, I just have learned how to do it politely so no one hears me. At a wine tasting, I just let loose. But with people, I would never, because it's so, you know, please, it's so, but anyway, what this sounds like in a professional setting is this. I have a little wine cup in my hand, so it goes like. Rachel? Exhalation. Right. Rachel's got it. Right. Of course she does. This is what she does for a living. When I tried to swallow, I realized, thanks to Rachel, that air was coming out of my nose, and that's when the taste was overwhelming. But, and you always but, call that the echo, Faith. Well, some wines echo and some wines don't. Hey, Rachel, what would you say? Is that the t- any taste buds in the back of the throat that makes that happen? So it's your nose that's really responding. So the taste buds are probably reacting, in the, for the most part, with respect to wine. You're getting the sensation, which is more tactile of astringency. That's actually just a feeling sensation. You're getting probably some sour. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you're getting a little sweet depending on it. But everything else that you're experiencing, all the characteristics, the wet dog and the caramel and everything like that, that exactly. comes from the exhalation, which is <laughs> the reason with the, that aroma yeah. is then passing over the olfactory receptors in your nose. This is yeah. like a, this is one of the funny Ooh, ones. Yeah, wet okay. dog, is, yeah. it, it really true, is though. something that is discussed among wine <laughs> people. Wet animal Cat, let me see. Yes. Animal fur, yeah. wet dog, pencil shavings, yep. and cat pee. Cat pee. <laughs> yes, oh, those are some of our the great. The great master of wine, Jancis Robinson, yeah. once wrote a, an article in The Art of Eating and, and was talking about all the nomenclature and the terms. And <laughs> the title was My Saddle Sweats Vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think of that for the range. <laughs> um, in your book, you tell a great story about a colleague, and I admire her very much, Linda Bartoshuk. She's in Florida now at the University of Florida doing her research, and she is a a much-admired taste researcher. And she's been called in to help national tomato producers and shippers do something with the fact that our supermarket tomatoes, not farm tomatoes, supermarket tomatoes don't taste like anything. They're bred for shipping now, and the taste... Mm disappeared. So I read with great fascination when Rachel Hers talks in her book as a neuroscientist about what makes a tomato taste anything to begin with. So can you talk about that, please? Tomatoes are bred these days to withstand being packed in crates and bumped along the road in trucks and to stay looking pretty. So they need to be red and round and not crushed and all bumpy and so forth. And as a function of that, the flavor profile of the tomato is pretty much dead. The way of potentially bringing it back is to figure out, especially with respect to the aromatics, because that's really giving you the flavors. And what's really interesting is Linda's research has shown that it's this really complex mixture of aromatics in tomatoes that taste 
great, and that not all these specific aromatics are by themselves things that we would consider that smell good. And that's the really interesting phenomena here, that we have this kind of synergy, and it's a similar kind of phenomena in perfumery, where you use some ingredients that by themselves are kind of funky, but in the mixture, because mm. the whole is not the same as the sum of the parts, in the mixture when it comes to aroma, you get this really great flavor and sort of trying to back-engineer right now, this is what Linda's work is about, tomatoes that taste and have the flavor of the old-fashioned delicious tomato and then can still withstand being shipped. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> fascinating. I want to get to this section, and I know people, when they heard me talking about this in the introduction, um, that they would say, get to that part. You call it in your book, Diet Aromatherapy how to distract ourselves, in a sense, from binge eating or cravings of any kind. I certainly have cravings from time to time, as most people I know do, and some people more than others. So tell me about what uh, the nose has to do with this. So, well, the nose can do two things, and you also said in your introduction how if you're smelling bacon, it can be a great lure to wanting to eat some. And even if you're not at all in the slightest bit hungry, these delicious aromas are definitely motivating for food. But certain aromas can actually also help us resist eating. This is also, I wanted to say at the beginning, that you can't be in a real state of hunger because you should eat then. <laughs> but if you're trying not to eat, you know, after lunch, the donuts are there in the break room or whatever the case might be, you can use different aromas to help you get rid of that craving. Like what? Well, one of the things that has been shown in various studies is aromas which are connected with motivations to, let's say, eat healthy and think about food in a, in a healthier, cleaner way, like fruit aromas, might help you not eat the donuts. So, for example, if you had the aroma of oranges or the aroma of pear, you might say, well, maybe I'll have an orange. Actually, I'm not really hungry. Forget about it, <laughs> rather than going into the donut box. The other thing that aromas can do, and this really speaks to their power with respect to emotion and emotional memory that I've done a lot of work on, mm. is how you could smell something, for instance, has nothing to do with food, but it's an aroma which for you is personally meaningful. And sniffing it will take you down memory lane where you're totally not in the mode of thinking about food. Maybe you're thinking about a vacation. Maybe you're just reliving a really fond memory. And Having that little break from the craving can disrupt those feelings of desire so that when you come back to reality, you've moved on and don't need to eat Isn't something. It's amazing. The sense of smell being tied to memory is one of the clearest and strongest. Mm -hmm. I mean, Agreed. it is the greatest trigger for memory. Yes. I, I feel. Yes. I do, too. Oh, yeah. And the way that Rachel Hurst gets into this in her book is so utterly fascinating. I'm frustrated, actually, that I can't get into more of this because it's so fantastic why you eat what you eat, the science behind our relationship with food. And may I say that Rachel Hurst has an ability, I think, and people say this about her, but I read it for myself in reading this this book, to explain very, you know, sort of science things in just everyday language. So I certainly felt included. There is not a lot of sciencey geek talk that I might not understand. It's very understandable, absolutely fascinating about how the world works 
for instance, companies use what they do to appeal to us. So that's good to be in control of that information. And also why we do what we do and might sometimes get into trouble, um, why we love what we love. It's just wonderful. Thank you, Rachel Hurst. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great. Okay. Hope you'll come back. I hope so, too. <laughs> okay, good. We have a lot more to talk about. Um, why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food, Dr. Rachel Hurst. Information about the book at foodschmooze.org. Coming up, we have, for me, one of the great wine experts out there, Michael Kane, and he is from Rosenthal Wines. We have three fabulous wines to tell you about. More mouth-watering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foodschmooze.org and we'll be right back. I didn't know that I was starving till I tasted you. Don't need no butterflies when you give me Middleton, sign up for our free podcast or copy of the show. It arrives in your inbox every week, and you can listen to the Foochmoos on your schedule. Sign up for the first time at foochmoos.org, and then it comes to you. I'm with my treasured food buddies. I do treasure them. Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut. Wine broker Alex Province from KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona. And Michael Kane of Rosenthal Wine Merchants. Here is a tip, everybody, from Cooks Illustrated. I love this. I've been trying to, you know, I make fun of kale. You know, I mean, <laughs> it really, it, it just, I, it just, so. it just got to be too much for me. Kale salad, um, kale smoothie, kale kale. You know what? <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I got tired of how tough the leaves are, and I uh, thought, this is ridiculous. I don't know who started mean. It. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So in Cook's Illustrated, they gave a great tip. You know, sometimes you see a restaurant that says massaged kale, oh and gosh. I just burst out <laughs> laughing. There's because, a masseuse in back just for the kale. No, I think, come on. <laughs> On. Are you joking? It's like farm to table. Well, where else does it come from? It comes from a farm somewhere. Okay, so, but you know what? Here's a real thing. Cooks Illustrated said they got a tip from a woman named Deborah Bernstein. You know, I think the kale is too tough as a green. She uses her stand mixer 
to massage kale for a salad. She adds the greens <laughs> and the dressing. No, seriously. Okay. Okay. I think this is a good tip. Right. Adds the greens and the dressing to the bowl of the stand mixer and then mixes them on low speed, uses the paddle attachment. And what it does is knead the kale. And you think, really? But what that really does is break down the cell walls, and mm. that's what makes us taste it as tender the same way that we find lettuce tender. It is a completely different experience. So I bet a rolling pin would work too. Lay it oh, out flat an and idea. use a rolling Chris, pin. Chris, would and just that work? Of, yeah. You know what? And I actually didn't believe any of this until I was sitting – with a farmer. He had kale with him and he took the kale and crushed it and rolled it in his hands and it kept rolling it and rolling and rolling and it was done. He goes, now taste that. And it was a totally different thing than the kale fresh off the stalk and try to eat it. It was two totally different things. So it does work. (laughs) Should we bring in the mixer and the paddle and try it? So I have one of those. Sometimes it's just a pain to get out the big food processor. So I have actually a couple of these mini food chopper things. And I was thinking, well, what happens if I put it in there and chop it up really fine? What do I care whether it's big or little? And would that work? Probably would, but it would be more like a shredded like slaw at that point. But you know what the bottom line is? The bottom line is kale is really healthy. We've known this all along. So no matter how you eat it, it's a good thing to eat. It goes great in soup. Chicken soup, I think, is the best place for it, like Mm. the Portuguese do. Ah, do they? Okay. Yeah, they make that green soup. So um, Michael Kane, who's our guest next, is from Providence. I lived there once, too. Huge Portuguese community. Mm -hmm. So you you try their food and their... Definitely. The kale and garlic broth soups that yep. they'll make in the Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. Sopa Portuguesa. Sopa. Yeah. Okay. Warren Avenue in East Providence. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's right. Road trip. Right. And New Bedford. And Provincetown. Well. Another one. Sure. It's big communities. Okay, and great restaurants. In the same issue of Cook's Illustrated, I thought this was a particularly good issue. They tasted basmati rice. Ooh. Testing brands, and they said the most highly recommended by them is a brand called Dawat, D-A-A, so two A's, D-A-A-W-A-T, Dawat Basmati Rice, pleasantly chewy, long, elegant, distinct, intact grains, a nice bite, Indian-grown rice, fragrant, tender, perfect when eaten plain or in a pilaf. It's what they use in chicken biryani in Mm -hmm. Indian restaurants. Just a a wonderful rice, and I'm going to hunt that down. You can can go online. You can go get it at many um, Indian-slash-Asian markets. Dawat. So we wanted to let you know, and thank you to Cooks Illustrated. That was great work. I'm going to take a quick break now. It might not seem as long as we usually take in our our second segment, but it's because I want to leave a lot of time for my next guest because it's a treat to have him on the show. Michael Kane, one of the great wine experts, in my opinion. We love the local, and we ask you to support your local food growers and food makers. You know I'm excited about this, so don't go away because we have three fantastic wines to tell you about, all affordable and one doozy. Stay with us.
is the Food Schmooze Party offering the richness of life. And coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York. New York including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, that means the Hamptons too. The senior producer is Robin Doyan Aiken. And to hear the show on Connecticut Public Radio, it airs Thursdays at 3 and 9 and Saturdays at noon. Podcasts and our curated recommendations are always online at foodschmooze.org. Whenever I travel to New York, New England, and many other places in the country, really, and I visit a wine store that I know or I don't know, this is true. I mean, I do this. I ask immediately if they have a Rosenthal wine section. And I ask because, without exaggeration, I have never been disappointed in one of Rosenthal's imports, red or white. I've never been sorry about the price, low or high, if I can afford to pay the high. Every single wine from this producer has been worth it to me, and that's about trust. And so I was very excited when one of my, you know, most knowledgeable people about wine, Michael Kane, said, sure, I'll come on the show from Rosenthal. Michael, what is Rosenthal called? Is it an importer? It's an importer. An importer. So you go, you go to the vineyards and you taste the wine and you say, we're bringing you over here. We source the growers and have worked with many of these growers for now 40 years. If you read about what Rosenthal's philosophy is, it is to find the midpoint between finesse and power in a wine. If you love wine, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're new to wine or you you don't really know all this stuff that all of us talk about, but you just say, well, that's good or that's not good. It is something that is so important, this finesse and power, because it has a subtlety. It's like a friend. You know, a person has the ability to be subtle and nuanced and also the exuberance of either power or joy or sadness. You know, it's like a well-rounded person, a well-rounded wine. We look for the same things in wine sometimes, although you heard from our last guest that there are taste buds involved, and that explains why you like what you like and I like what I like. If you don't like something, you are entitled not to like it. But if you're someone who has a kind of a a palate that works easily with things, we're just trying to turn you on to things. We just think that wine, no matter what you like, is the most wonderful experience because it is truly a living, breathing thing in that bottle. Still changing, even in the bottle. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Enough preaching. Praise the Lord, that's what I want to (laughs) say. Um, well, how did I do? How did I do, Michael? Did just I rep- fine. Did just I represent fine, your work? You're doing great. Bless you, I Michael. love that the combination uh, <laughs> finesse and power. What you're really talking about is balance. Why though? Why? Why? Because that brings together what I would call intensity that goes with that word power. When you work with small growers who tend only the vineyards that they own, many of them across for generations. These are special spots, uh, plots of land. And when they do so with an authenticity and a fidelity to the earth, the wines they bring forth, you know you're in the presence of a grower who's known when to leave well enough alone and just let the fruit from the vineyard 
transfer into the glass and speak for itself. Yes. So Alex and I talk about always wholesome wine. And what we mean is that out of 2,000 pieces of junk that people can add in certain vineyards to wine, these growers that we try to feature on the show don't do that to the best of our knowledge. That's what you're interested in, right? Exactly. No junk. They're confident in what's inherently interesting in the wines they make is what comes from the vineyard. Can you? And they let that speak for itself. Yeah. I've always heard farmers first. Sure. That, that's, that's what, what these they, vineyard owners are. Love that. That's Chris. what we got. Vigneron, the yeah. entire term. There is no term in – just what use French mean? since we're going to stay with a number of French wines. The French don't have a word for winemaker. There is no word for – it's yeah. vigneron, mm-hmm. which is the term for wine grower. Two French and one Italian. We're going to run out of time faster than anybody thinks. <laughs> yeah, right. um, so we better plunge in. So this is a white wine from Alsace. Can exactly. you Can you tell me where – very fast, Michael, because I'm going to breeze through these three wines. These wines are on our website at foochmoose.org, pictures of the label and everything. This is a fabulous white wine. These wines are all around $20, though I'm going to tell you about one that is a doozy, and it's related to this white Alsace, and I just almost fell over when I had it, but I love this lesser-priced one. All of these around $20. So can you say the name for me because I'm going to So the name well. of this wine is Cote d'Amersvier. And that, it just is that means, the vineyard? That is actually telling you where it's coming from. It's coming from the village of Amersvier that's in the very heart of the center of the uh, vineyard area of Alsace. But I should anchor where we are in France. You're in the far northeasternmost corner of the country. Near Germany. And right near Germany, but you're on the west bank of the Rhine. You're hemmed in between the Vosges Mountains and the Rhine River. The name of this wine is Domaine... The name of the domain, the estate that produces it, is Domaine Maurice Chauche. That's pronounced show. You, you have to look. You have to go to our website, foodschmooze.org, and you have to show them the picture and spell it. Don't be afraid. That's what I would do. The Cote d'Amersphere comes out of a tradition in the village of, as we were talking about, all of these finest villages are tucked up against the Vosges Mountains. And as the Vosges Mountains drop in to the Rhine River Plain, Behind the villages in the lower-lying areas, or at least around Amersphere, they have this tradition of planting field-planted blends, pulling in the grapes altogether, a multiplicity of grapes, and vinifying them in a field-planted blend. Yeah, so here's what he's saying. In this region of Alsace, up high are the fancy-schmancy ones. Down below is this one he's talking about where people get together and plant. This winemaker... It's down in the lower region. That's why it's $20 and not $35, $50, $100. And it is absolutely delicious. The total fall, I'd be having this as my white, my white wine. So go to the website, foodschmooze.org, around $20. How would you describe this? This is a, a dry white wine, but has a richness to it. And I'm trying to understand what makes that happen. So on the one hand, there's that dry, beautiful white wine quality. And then there's like a floral uplift, as you Lift. describe it, Michael. Tell exactly. me. Exactly. In the Shosh family plot behind the village, of Amersphere. Jean-Léon Choche's grandfather planted 95% Pinot Blanc, so pretty much the working horse 
white grape variety of the region. And then but what did he, he do? he <laughs> also added 5% of a grape variety, which Jean Léon is always reminding us. My grandfather always said if the wine was produced from 10% of this grape variety, it would dominate the wine. But there's 5% of Muscat, which is a grape variety. We that say often, Muscat, right? Muscat, mm -hmm. yes. Thank you. I'm pronouncing it with the Alsace no, folks okay. in mind. The Muscat here is rather than giving you a powerful apricot fruit and something that you would think of as tending towards extremely fruity, slightly exotic, it's toned down here. It's just a piece and it gives great aromatics and you get this lift, a sort of updraft off the wine that makes it just gorgeous this time of year and headed into fall. What foods would you have foods. this white wine with? Well, as we were discussing earlier, almost anything, the Cote d'Amersphere of Shosh. I think of it as an extremely versatile wine if you're doing any kind of greens, so salads. And if you're putting anything from white meat poultry to a range of fish on mm. top of a bed of greens mm. Mm. with uh, a range of Beautiful. other vegetables around it, it can give lift mm -hmm. and zest and life to yeah, the salad. We do sauerkraut once fall comes in, and that's like right with some sausages. Yeah. We, we had bacon oh, sandwiches. Classic also yeah. choucroute. Yes. We had bacon yeah. sandwiches on the show, bacon and tomato yeah. sandwiches, fresh tomato. Oh, my goodness. It was fabulous. So this is a, a white wine you want to pay attention to. I really mm -hmm. endorse this wine. Go to foodschmooze.org to see the label so you don't have to be embarrassed about not knowing how to pronounce it. I don't, for instance. This is the kind of label I'm guessing you'd bring your smartphone in and just show the picture to the retailer and let yeah. them, right? Yeah. Great, great idea. Okay, and now we've got two reds, one from France. Again, these are around $20 each, and the other one from Italy. I was just crazy about these reds, and they are perfect for this time of year or any time as far as I'm concerned because it's a little Bing Jerry thing going on in there, and yet there's structure. And so this is the kind of friend you want to be around. Right. So the first red, you, you the go. French red, takes us to Burgundy. So we're dropping down from Alsace to the mm -hmm. southernmost part of Burgundy, less than an hour's drive north of mm -hmm. Lyon, uh, the cradle of French gastronomy. And here you have a Macon Pierre Clos Rouge. This is Macon region of France. There is a village called Pierre Clos, and that's why the name Macon Pierre Clos. Oh. What are the characteristics of this, and what foods would we have with this very sporty, friendly red? Yeah. You get an ebullient fruit that's dark mm. but, and feral at the same time, sauvage. Oh. It, has, it has, as you rightfully mm. point out, it has that Bing cherry intensity, mm. a real sort of darker cherry fruit to it. It's very vibrant, but it's a little sauvage. It puts you in the middle Something. of the bramble or briar patch, and you feel like you're plucking, whether it's blackberries, I mentioned cherries before, but it has a red fruits, black fruits kind of uh, melange. Can I, oh, that's beautifully said. Can I say, the French often don't do what I call walking around wines. Everything is so geared to food, and of course this is too. This is a red that I just fell for immediately. It is so adorable is the best word that I can say about it. And when I say walking around, it means if someone comes over to my house and we don't even have snacks, we just pour this into a glass. I promise you the person opposite you mm. is going to say, ooh, this is good. Uh, this is Light this is and good, sprightly. and yet, uh, yet I would have it with a million things: my chicken mm. on the grill, my swordfish on the grill, uh, my grilled vegetables, uh, hamburgers, 
I wouldn't do something like red sauce, but this is just sporty and fabulous, this wine, around $20. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of this This is the transition into fall, right? I drink white wines yes. on my porch in the summer, and now I'm ready to transition to sitting on my porch and having a red wine. Mm-hmm. And this is the kind yes. of red wine to drink on your porch in the Except fall. Except I like some reds in the summer. I would put five to ten minutes of chill on this wine. Certainly. Right. Sounds it's like a great Thanksgiving wine, too. Serious. Right? Sure. Oh, sure. perfect with turkey. Right. Alive. Although I'm going to give you another Wonderful. one perfect with turkey. Okay. So, Faith, you know how Dr. Hurst was talking about how tomatoes have lost sort of all their essence? When uh, Michael mentions like sauvage and feralness, this kind of reminds me of those sensations that when they're collective and all together make the wine, right? There's a vibrant fruit to this wine. But the wine remains lithe, supple, and I love, uh, Faith, your term, sporty. There's a lift. <laughs> okay. There's an energy uh, and drive to the wine across and the palate that keeps it very refreshing. I'm guessing I it's nice, bright red. Yeah, it is well, a bright red. I and, like when you— And yes. limpid. It allows light to come through it. It is an opaque. I like when you say lift— about right. certain wines. I love that phrase. Well, okay. the, certainly these two you first gravitated to, mm-hmm. the white and the red, have a great deal of lift okay. to them. Here we go. You know, we're leaving France and we're going to Italy. We rarely do three wines in a row on the show. We're doing it this time because it's Michael Kane. He and the Rosenthal wine merchants that he represents. You heard me say whenever I go anywhere around the country, there's like 42 states or something that they do their wine. Wine stores will sometimes have a section that says Rosenthal Wines because there are a lot of people who love wine who just say, do you have any Rosenthal Wines? Because if you're going to spend $15, $20, you'd think no matter what they tell me, it's going to be fine. Not only fine, but sometimes fantastic. And this is another one that's fantastic. This is a Barbera from the Piemonte region or Piedmont in Italy, and it's called Barbera d'Alba. It's posted with a picture of the label at foodschmooze.org. It's bottled by a vineyard called Day Fourville. I love this wine, around $20. I can't believe it. I would have this just year-round. It's spectacular With when we finally get to turkey season. But now, go ahead. So the Barbera d'Alba, this is the grape. So it's Barbera from around the village of Alba. And this is actually our Barbaresco producer. And it gives you a much more saturated fruit flavor to it. It's darker hued still than the Gamay that was producing the last wine. So Barbera is, we have a Barolo producer as well who is fond of saying Barbera is the grape of friends. Anytime friends <laughs> gather together, and if there's a plate of charcuterie, sopraceta so, prosciutto uh, in the center salami, of a table, in the center of the, exactly you know, the, in the center of a table, a there's a bottle of sausage, Barbera, a little pepperoni, a little. Could you exactly. have this with red red sauce? Would yes, you say? definitely. Yeah. It oh, goes equally with with uh, pasta dishes and oh, into sure. a full complement of red meats. Oricetta with sausage and broccolini, right? Or a broccoli rob as well, or a little bitter yeah. snack to it. It can go wonderful with that. One of the great things about Barbera is tannins are virtually transparent. They're absent. 
you don't even see them. You know how sometimes we talk about Barbera is one of the lowest amount of tannins of any red grape variety. We talk about High acid, but low tannin. We talk about that tea bag effect in your mouth. Yeah, the astringency that Rachel talked about. And it's a, a dryness suddenly pervades your mouth. And if you're just drinking it by itself, you say, oh, what, what's that going on there? Very I don't know if stringent. I like that. But that dryness, those tannins they're called, make it so food-friendly sometimes. So but if there you're you not, if you're a little adverse to that astringency and don't like that drying sensation, mm. Barbera can be a great grape oh. variety to come to because in they'll red. be the most benevolent expression of those tannins. I'm thinking great with Mexican food for me out here. Really? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Are you Indeed. folks in Arizona? And the vibrancy of fruit. Yes, we have a distributor okay. in Arizona. I promised you I would tell you about the doozy wine. And that doozy is a white, and I had it about a month ago with Michael and Jean-Michel from Union League and Barbara Shona Medicine. I almost fainted when I tried this white. It is so spectacular. It's made in Alsace, and it is a Grand Cru, which means fancy, fancy, (laughs) you know, spectacular wines. Mm. Aren't we lucky that our hillside is positioned so gorgeously? And we do things so well that we can get this this name, Grand Cru. And it's a Riesling. Most people think Rieslings are sweet. This is not. It is a dry one, but with that floral quality in the nose and a little bit of acidity. Honestly, it, it will sweep you away like a great novel. So this is... The Riesling Grand Cru Firstentum. 2015 from the domain Maurice Schoch. The first, the white wine that we talked about, Cote d'Ambershire, is is the little wine from this family. Same family. Same family. What is this? Thirty, thirty-five dollars a bottle. Is yeah, it's between thirty-five, but shy of forty dollars. Your host gift celebration wine. Equally this, good at the Thanksgiving is, dinner table. Yeah, this is my Thanksgiving wine. Spectacular. Mm. It's on our website, the Alsace Grand Cru. All of these wines, fantastic. Okay, thanks to Alex in Phoenix and to Michael Kane of Rosenthal Wine Merchants. The best. You. you are the best. Thank you. Thank you. We're on Connecticut Public Radio Thursdays at 3 and 9 p.m. and Saturdays at noon. Weekdays, listen for my 60-second food schmoozes and never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Hey, don't want the party to end? Well, neither do we. Talk with us anytime online at foodschmooze.org.